Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. You're going to need to be wide awake for the next few minutes as we go through the epistles of Paul. You heard about the college class that had a question, what do you think about the epistles? And the guy said, I think they're the wives of the apostles. Uh, they're not. They're letters that uh, were written to churches, Romans through Titus. I, I can remember driving through uh, Oklahoma headed toward Fort, Fort Worth one day, and it was late at night. And you can see the lights of Fort Worth about 30 miles before you get there. There's just a hill that you crest coming out of Oklahoma into Texas, and you get past uh, Denton and you start driving down the road and it's just pitch black and you wonder why in the world does anybody want to live here? But Oklahoma and, uh, has a unique thing that there's a border there that keeps it from sliding south into Texas. And uh, some of you get that that have ever lived in Oklahoma. Uh, but uh, Fort Worth, the buildings of Fort Worth are outlined in lights, much like we do at Christmas time. Their buildings are outlined in lights, and so you can see the buildings, the skyscrapers of Fort Worth miles and miles before you get there. In a way, when we get to Paul's letters, we are starting to get our first glimpse of our destination. We're starting to see where we're going. We're headed toward the book of Revelation, but as we've topped the hill out of the book of Acts and and hit the book of Romans, we're now seeing the lights in the distance, and as we continue to drive, we get closer and closer and closer to our destination. The Christian life is unique in that it is the only religion, world religion, that has its instruction built on letters written by individuals to churches and to individuals. Not doctrinal thesis, not great dissertations, but letters written to people, to rank and file people. And the great truths are in these supernaturally inspired letters with practical applications. And so let's look at the church epistles and the explanation of doctrine because these epistles are not abstract. They are doctrinal and specific in nature. And I want to ask you to skip the book of Romans for right now and go to 1 Corinthians because these are the folks that God uses. These are the folks that God uses. And these are the kind of people to whom these letters were written. I remember Paul is one of the most highly educated, intelligent, brilliant men of his day. And yet he is writing to common laborers and common people and people that are still in slavery and some who are masters who own slaves and who have been saved and brought into the life of Christ. And he's writing this letter to them. And in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many. He didn't say not any. He said, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that, here's why God chooses these kind of people so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now there in your notes, you see a reference to the fact that in the gospels, Jesus is presented. In the epistles, he is interpreted. In the gospels, we have the Jesus of history. In the epistles, we have Jesus in us. The gospels are the foundation and the epistles are the building that is built on top of the foundation. Go a few more pages into the book of 1 Corinthians into chapter 15, and let's look at a passage that links both historical facts and truth about what these epistles are about. And I wanna break down these three phrases after we read this verse. 1 Corinthians 15, three, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died. Paul is stating a basic fact. He's not speculating. He's not saying this could have happened. He's emphatically saying Christ died for our sins. The saving truth of that fact, Christ didn't just die. He died for our sins. There's a saving truth in that fact. And then it was according to the scriptures, it was the supernatural seal on the word of God that God had allowed Christ to die for the saving of our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, this was a fulfillment of all God had said, all God had prophesied, and all God had promised. And so the epistles take up where the gospels leave off, and they deal with the atoning death of Christ, the heavenly intercession of Christ, and his second coming. So when you're looking at Christ in the epistles, you see the emphasis on his atoning death you see the emphasis, especially when we get to Hebrews, that he ever lives to make intercession for us and that he is coming back. So, where the Gospels deal with his death for us, the epistles deal with his life in us. Christ died for us. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts, transitional, the Holy Spirit has come. Romans and following, Christ in us. That's his death and his life working in us and working through us. And so, let me give you just two quick statements here. In the Gospels, he became one with us. In the Epistles, we become one with him. In other words, in the Gospels, Christ identified himself with man. He was all God and he was all man. But in the Epistles, we become one in him. He comes to live and to rule and to reign in us. Of the 22 letters that are written in the New Testament, 13 of them are written by Paul. Some people believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. I don't believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, some people say Luke could have written it. If Luke wrote it, he wrote more than anybody else in the New Testament. If Paul wrote it, he obviously wrote more than anybody else. But the language, the Greek language and the way Hebrews is worded, Quite honestly, it could have been written by a woman because it is a little more in the way that a woman would have written in those days. We don't know who. When we get to heaven, we'll find out we were all wrong. <laughs> Romans and Ephesians are theological masterpieces. They were written by Paul on his journeys and while he was in prison. People wondered, why did, why did God allow... Paul to be put into prison. Listen, if he hadn't been put into prison, he never would have written most of the letters that he wrote. 
He was too busy out evangelizing and witnessing and sharing and starting churches. He never would have slowed down enough to write the letters that he wrote. We should be grateful, although I'm sure he wasn't at the time, that he was imprisoned for seasons in his life so that he could sit down and dictate or handwrite himself these letters. And each letter dealt with an issue. Let me just mention a few. First of all, Corinth, the letters to the Corinthians, dealt with internal disorder and confusion internal disorder and confusion. When you read the letter to the Corinthians, these people had all the gifts. Uh, they were advanced among other people in other churches, but there was carnality and confusion and disorder in the church. And so Paul actually wrote them three letters. We only have two of them. He refers to one of them in the second letter that we don't have. Galatians dealt with external deceivers. Corinth had an internal problem. The church at Galatia had an external problem. Then we have Philippians. And Philippians deals with the practical aspects of unity. Now, just imagine this. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, and he comes to chapter 4, and he says, Now, those two women in particular, tell them to quit gossiping and to learn how to get along. Can you imagine the Sherwood communicator coming out? And the pastor saying, praise God, Jesus is good, God's been great, we've had wonderful worship. By the way, there's two women in the church I wish would just be quiet <laughs> and name them. I mean, just think, when you get to heaven, you're going to run into those two women and say, so you're the two women that wouldn't be quiet in the church. How'd you like that to be your reputation? How'd you like that to be your life story? I couldn't be quiet. Paul, the apostle, the one who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, had to tell me to zip it. <laughs> uh, what a testimony. <laughs> Colossians. Colossians dealt with the Gnostic heresy, whether Jesus actually had a physical body and died physically or not. And so Paul's answers to them, cross cultures and races and times, because those are the basic issues that you see up there, internal disorder, external deceivers, unity, or heresy are the basic issues that churches have had to deal with for 2,000 years. Now just a note about the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. Romans has been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith because it is a, it is a signi uh, significant, if not the most significant, letter that Paul wrote because he deals with the doctrine of salvation. He deals with the doctrine of sanctification and how it applies in our lives. Galatians has been called the declaration of independence of the church because Paul tells us we are no longer bound to the old legal system. We have been set free in Christ. Set free does not mean we can live however we want to live. Set free means we are free to live the way God intended us to live. And so, I want you to turn now to 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Reproof always means dealing with wrong practices. Correction always means dealing with wrong doctrine. So, reproof and correction deal with wrong practice and wrong doctrine. So, let's look at how this works out in Paul's writings. In Romans, Paul gives us clear doctrine. So he's, Scripture is given to teach us. 
to train us in righteousness. That's what Romans does. First and second Corinthians are clear books of reproof. So when you're looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, every one of the epistles that Paul writes has some aspect of 2 Timothy 3.16 in that letter, in that epistle. He's dealing, he's reproving them uh, in 1 and 2 Corinthians. In Galatians, there's correction. He's correcting the error of the Judaizers and those who are the legalists inside the life of the church. In Ephesians, clear doctrinal teaching. In Philippians, reproof for faulty practices. And in Colossians, correction for Gnostic errors. And so what is he doing in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians? He's training them in righteousness, but he's training them in righteousness by correcting and reproving them. He is teaching them about who they are in Christ, but at the same time, he's helping them to understand what it doesn't mean. And so when we come to First and Second Thessalonians, it's clear doctrine concerning the, concerning the Lord's return, but then he reproves people for misusing prophecy or becoming lazy because they believe that the Lord's coming back. So if you would, as you're trying to keep up with me, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You can write by 2 Thessalonians 3.11, wrong practices. Wrong practices. Now, if they were having wrong practices, it was probably because they had wrong doctrine. And if you back up to verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that's wrong doctrine. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 deals with wrong practices. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3 deals with wrong doctrine. Let no one in any way deceive you. And so when you look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and you say, well, that verse is just kind of isolated. It just kind of stands on its own. It is a summation statement, if you will. It is a divide. I can't get my tongue to work right tonight. It is a declaration from Paul to say everything I have said to every church I've ever been in falls in these categories. Doctrine reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So as we've talked about in how you study your Bible, if you read the book of Philippians, you just should make a little note. When do you see doctrine? When do you see reproof? When do you see correction? When do you see training in righteousness? And mark it down and you will see the pattern throughout the writings of Paul that he didn't just randomly make up this statement about why scripture has been given to us. And by the way, Paul was not writing to get his books included in the Bible at the time. He was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but Paul didn't sit down and say, hmm, I think I'll write 13 books that'll be included in the New Testament. 
He was writing as an apostle to deal with the issues of the first century church. And God knowing what he was doing and God overseeing all that he was doing saw to it that he would be consistent in what he said to every church. And so when you get Paul writing to these churches, they don't say, well, why don't you talk to us like you talk to some other churches? You never reprove them for anything. You like them more than you like us. They must have given you a better love offering than we've given you. Paul could go into every church in every time in every way and say, I've said the same thing to all of you. I've said it in different ways. I've had a different emphasis, but I've always been consistent in my message in every church that I've preached. He didn't change the message for the crowd. And so if you see uh, in your notes, the unfolding story of redemption and Romans emphasizes salvation, Corinthians and Galatians emphasize our fellowship in the spirit, Galatians uh, emphasizes the individual walking in the spirit and Ephesians and Colossians talk about our oneness in Christ. So let's look at those very quickly. First of all, Ephesians emphasizes one body. That's unity. One body. That is unity. Now, silly illustration, it'll help you. When Greg was playing just a moment ago, what if his left hand and his right hand were not in unity? In other words, the right hand said, well, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I would like to be emphasized more at this time. It wouldn't have had the melody. It wouldn't have had the beauty in it. The body has to work together. And when the body is functioning as a unit, it is healthy. When the body is not functioning as a unit, it's unhealthy. And so he writes to them about one body and unity. Philippians, one mind. One mind then we'll have harmony. If we're of one mind, we're not scattered in our thinking, then we have harmony in the church. Not only one body and unity and one mind and harmony, but in Colossians, one head of the church. There is one head of the church, sanctified, set apart for Christ. There are not many heads of the church, there's one. We are the body, he's the head. You cut the head off from the body and you don't have a healthy body. The body works under the authority of the head. First and second Thessalonians remind us that we're not only dead, but we are risen in Christ and one day we will be with the Lord. So I'm going to give you as simple a summary as I can give you of these epistles. The first four epistles look back to the cross. The first four look back to the cross. So when you're reading Romans and first and second Corinthians, and he talks, ends up first Corinthians talking about the resurrection and Galatians, they're looking back. This is what Christ did for us. The middle three look ahead to the bridegroom, Christ. They look ahead to the bridegroom. We've looked back no, I'm sorry, we look up. We look up to the bridegroom, and then we look ahead. The last, we look ahead to his coming. Now, what is interesting is, as Paul is writing, Romans chapter 1, he begins with the wrath of God. And as he ends up his letters to the churches, he concludes with a coming king. God's wrath, salvation provided, Power for living, 
Christ is coming. He looks back on how God's wrath was poured out on Christ and that if we are sinners who reject Jesus, we are without excuse. We have no escape. And then he points to Christ and what Christ can do for us and then he ends up saying, and here he's coming. And he's leading the way for us, helping us to see the life of Christ, the life of the Holy Spirit in us, and the life to come, all in his writings. Now, the epistles to the individuals, there are three pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then a private letter uh, about Philemon. Somebody has described these letters as pastoral, personal, and paternal. Paul is dealing with the church. Now he's dealing with ministers. And these books, we've had nine over here where he's been dealing with the churches. These books to individuals are a bridge now. Remember, Acts is a bridge. These books are a bridge to the remaining books, Hebrews through Revelation. They build a bridge on how leadership in a church is supposed to function and how you're supposed to look for leaders and what leaders are supposed to be inside of a local church. And so Paul is writing about how the church should be led. Now, there's a couple of things here that I just want to mention to you. First of all, there is no hierarchy. There is no pyramid of power in the church. In other words, every church is autonomous. The church at Galatia could not go over and tell the church in Rome what they needed to do. The church in Rome could not run over to Ephesus and say, y'all need to be doing this. Every church stands on its own. It chooses to cooperate. And these letters deal with how a pastor is supposed to lead when issues and heresies and error come up in the life of a church. First Timothy 1, 6. Remember, these letters are written to Timothy and to Titus, who are both pastors. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they are making confident assertions. <laughs> I wrote in my notes, they're clueless, they're confusing communicators. <laughs> they're clueless, confusing communicators. Uh, they, they want to be teachers, but they don't know what they're saying. They're not teaching what God says. Verse uh, 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Turn over a few pages to chapter 5 and verse 15. Chapter 5 and verse 15. Remember, Paul is warning Timothy. He's investing in this young minister. And he's saying, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 21, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. See, what Paul is war warning them of is to Timothy and Titus, guys, they're not just turning from me. They're turning from the faith. And uh, we have several guys that have gone into ministry and serving outside of this church now. And uh, I, I may have told you this before. It bears repeating. 
but I send them the blogs that I want them to read, the podcasts that I want them to listen to, and the books that they're supposed to read, and they have to send me a book report. Because I, I want them reading the right things. I want them listening to the right things. I want them to have sound doctrine. I want them to be grounded in their faith because there is a movement in our culture today that is watering down the gospel, and we have a Christless Christianity and a powerless Christianity that can get a crowd, but it can't motivate a movement. And we need power in this next generation. And one of the reasons why we do refresh is I'm trying to pour myself for the next 20 years of my life, if God grants me that long, into young men in the ministry to say to them, you have something that has been passed on to you. You stand on the shoulders of giants. You didn't get here by yourself. You're not going to move forward on your own. And if you forsake this book, I'm gonna come break your neck. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Why? Because if I saw a young man that came out of this church and was ordained to ministry and forsook the word, I would bring to you a motion to take away his ordination papers. Because I wouldn't want us attached to that person in any way, shape, or form, even if they grew up here. Because it would say that we tolerate error, and we don't. And so you can pray for the guys and gals that are even now considering ministry and they've come out of this church into ministry, that they will stay by the stuff. That's what Paul is doing. When Paul said, the things that you have learned and heard and seen in me, these impart to faithful men who will teach others also, that's four generations. My goal is, before they put me in the grave, that I will have had an opportunity to influence four generations of people with the gospel. Amen. I got an email this week from uh, Jonathan Beasley, who was our youth minister from 90 to 95, had a great influence on Garrett's life and on Tracy's life and a lot of other uh, folks that grew up in our church. And I want to tell you, when Jonathan came here, there were a lot of people who didn't like him. And, in fact, we, we had to deal with some folks that just thought Jonathan wasn't very spiritual. <laughs> and there are a lot of folks that didn't like Jonathan. But I tell you, we had more people go into ministry in those five years than in any five-year stretch in the history of this church. Amen. And I sent Jonathan some stuff this week, and he sent me an email back. And he thanked me for investing in his life in those five years. He said, Michael, he said, when I was in Fayetteville, and when I was doing college ministry, every Sunday I was preaching to 1,200 people. Of course, Jonathan says he can take one of my messages, one message, and make it into a series. Uh, but he said, I just want you to know that a part of you influenced every one of those 1,200 college students every Sunday when I talked to them. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to invest in others who invest in others. And so that's what Paul is saying to Timothy and to Titus, you need to be investing in these people. So Paul looks around and he says that there's two sources of deceivers. In Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 20 through 28, Paul said that there are going to be wolves from the outside that are going to try to get in. And then he talks to Timothy and Titus about deceivers on the inside. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is looking down the road and he's looking at what's going to happen to the church when I'm gone. How's this church going to function? How's the church in Rome and Galatia and Ephesus and how are these churches going to function? What's going to be 
the testimony of that church 20 years after I'm gone, and he's concerned about it, and he's writing about pastoral leadership and what pastoral leadership needs to look like and about what deacons are supposed to be. We, we've had some times when we couldn't meet the number of deacons that we needed, and we just couldn't find either folks that weren't willing or didn't feel like they were ready or whatever, and we couldn't meet the number of deacons. And, and I've had to say, it's not about a number. It's about what the Bible says. I mean, we can fill any chart with a number of people. But it's about what the Bible says that a deacon is supposed to be. And ladies and gentlemen, when a church waters down the qualifications for a deacon, it will next water down the qualifications for a pastor. Amen. Because when you compromise at one level, you will compromise at all levels. And you'll begin to water down, and before you know it, you'll have somebody that doesn't preach the Word and doesn't teach the Word and doesn't call the church into accountability. So Paul talks about being entrusted with the gospel and guarding the gospel. Here's what he does. In 1 Timothy, he charged him to protect the gospel. To protect the gospel. In 2 Timothy, he charged him to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim that which you protected, which has been entrusted to you, which you are to guard. And in Titus, he charged Titus to practice the gospel. In other words, you protect what we believe and you live what we proclaim. So he's writing to these two young men that he's poured into and he's telling them about these are going to be perilous times and in the last days there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen and you need to be aware of it and you don't need to be surprised by it because there's going to be error and there's going to be heresy and there's going to be apostasy and you need to watch for it. Why does that happen? One reason. Scripture is no longer the final authority. When Scripture quits being the final authority, when it's public opinion, when it's the majority, when it's feelings, when it's I think or I want or I wish, when those things take authority over Scripture, the church loses its power. Because God works in spirit and in truth, in a partnership of spirit and truth. And so what happens when a church loses authority? Let me just give you some things as we wrap up. First of, my, first of all, you will see an undermining of biblical authority. It will be like the Garden of Eden. Has God said? An undermining of biblical authority. Well, I believe that most of the Bible is true, but I don't believe that all of it is true. That was the sin of Thomas Jefferson. who de He decided, he decided what he thought Jesus said and what he thought didn't, Jesus didn't say. I wonder how Jefferson would feel if we'd take his speeches today and say, you know, I bet he didn't think that up. I bet he stole that from Benjamin Franklin. Let's just take that out. He would never have wanted for his own life what he did to the lips and the life of Jesus Christ. The denial of basic vital truths. I won't dwell on that much because I've already dealt with that. Thirdly, when you don't have scriptures of final authority, the church is frazzled and divided by personalities and preferences. Well, I like him. Well, I like him. Well, I prefer this and I prefer that. 
When the scripture is not our final authority, then guess what? When the scripture is not our final authority, we will argue about what worship style really pleases God. And that's not what we're arguing about. What we're arguing about is what do we personally like that pleases us. That's where the argument gets to. We will argue about translations. It's like a guy who was doing some work for me one time, and he said, you know, you can come visit my church as long as you got King James Schofield. If you don't have King James Schofield, don't show up. We'll run you off. I said, really? He said, yep, King James Schofield. It's the only Bible. I said, which King James? The 1611, which you can't read because you're in Tennessee and you're dumb as dirt. Uh, you, sorry, Jim. <laughs> I threw you under the bus, son. <laughs> and you which can, by the way, King James has been revised 27 times. Over 1,300 words have been changed from the original King James. By the way, the, the book of the Reformers and the book of the Founding Fathers was not the King James Bible. It was the Geneva Bible was the book of our founding fathers. And the reason it was the book of our founding fathers is because the King James was authorized by a king and the founding fathers and the Puritans did not believe that the king of England had authority over the word of God. Amen. So, there's your an argument that you can get started with some folks. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> get out from under the bus, Jim. I'm through. You can, you can take off. Next, the selective use of Scripture instead of the whole counsel of God. When Scripture is not the final authority, we begin to selectively use Scripture, and we only pick out the parts we want, and the parts we want to study, and the parts we want to emphasize. Instead of looking at the whole counsel of God, a proof text is an easy thing to get into. Next, the embracing of evolution, secular humanism, and anti-Christian worldviews inside the church. You know why evolution got a foothold, don't you? Evolution got a foothold because liberalism in the church in Germany began to say, well, maybe God didn't create like he said. Well, I mean, you can debate this if you want to. The bottom line is you weren't there and I wasn't there, so let's go with who was there. Because if you don't believe what he said in Genesis chapter 1, why do you think you can believe what he said in John 3.16? Because if he lied at the beginning, he's been lying ever since. So you just got to decide. Do you let people make fun of you because you believe in a God who is so big that he existed before time and stood on nothing and said to nobody, let it be, and it was? <laughs> Or do you believe some guy that showed up thousands and thousands and thousands of years after the earth was created and decided you came out of pond scum? No wonder people are going for counseling and self-image issues. If I came from pond scum, I would be going for counseling and self-image issues. Of course, I've seen people that look like they had relatives that came out of pond scum. <laughs> Lastly, the cancerous decay of morals and ethics and values. When there is no right or wrong, then you can't tell your children and young people 
that there are morals and values and ethics by which they need to live. But when God has clearly stated there are laws, there are designs not to hurt us, but to help us and to protect us, then when we water down Scripture, we don't have a basis to say, well, that's right. That's right in whose opinion? That's wrong. Wrong in whose opinion? Doesn't matter right or wrong in whose opinion. What matters is what God says is right and wrong. And those things have not changed because we're more literate or we have more technology. So three things. First of all, we're in a race. Secondly, we're in a fight. And thirdly, we've got to finish the course. We're in a race. We're in a fight. And we've got to finish the course. Well, I tell you, I love the writings of Paul. Because Paul helps us. He helps us to see and to know and to discern. He warns us where we need to be warned. He encourages us where we need to be encouraged. And most of all, he tells us who we are in Christ. Not who the world says we are. The world judges us by the outside. How we look, what we have. Paul says, this is who you are in Christ. A lost sinner saved by grace, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, an heir and a joint heir with Christ, seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ, one who has been adopted into the family of God, one who has positioned with Christ in the heavenlies, all those things that Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. All the things that Paul says are to remind us that we are not judged by how this world judges us. We are judged by how God sees us. And God does not see us the way we are. God sees us through the eyes of Jesus. And when he looks at us, he looks at us through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And although practically sometimes we're not where we're supposed to be, positionally, in Christ, we are all His and of the beloved and the loved of God. That is good news. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.